4: Double. Your
0: Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. Good morning, Spike. Good morning, Inez.
5: Morning prayer, morning, listeners.
0: Hello! Yeah. Uh, how exciting! We have potentially a new breakfaster in the room. Um, Spike's joining us today, and hopefully we're gonna we're gonna provide an overview of how great breakfast
4: is and how good we are at it. It's actually so good. I don't think anything in the world could beat it.
5: Oh wow! That's so sweetiness. Thank you so much. <laughs> It's my first day. My first day back at three C R after a few years after I guess a working break.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean and it's it's also like a new show uh to join, so it's exciting to sort of I guess I am excited to, to see how we all like come together to figure out the show and you know, when Leela is back, it'll be pretty exciting and we will all have capacity to do amazing shows. Um so, uh we might take you through what we've got on for today. So first up, we are joined by Mere Natikau, Amer Kangizer, and Aliki Reed who are co-creators of the Listening Across Fault Lines Sound Art series which explores listening cultures in the Pacific. Bringing the wisdom of Pacific elders and knowledge holders together with immersive soundscapes, the series centers Pacific culture's understanding of the fundamental interdependence between people and ecosystems and the importance of deep listening to these relations. This was an incredible podcast series, and I can't wait to have this chat. We've been trying to um, bring it together for a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll have all the information in our show notes about where you can listen to listening across fault lines because it was a really transformative listening experience for me.
4: Inez? And next up, you'll hear from our very beloved Fung from Tuesday Brekkie and Women on the Line and her chat with uh, Daisy. And the chat was called Your Birth, Your Body, Seeking Continuity of Care. And Daisy's a nam based family violence lawyer and queer parent of a newborn who has recently had to navigate the medical maternity system. Daisy joined Fung on the 26th of June to share with us her observations on the lack of continuity of care for birthing people, the learning and unlearning that was required to avoid a traumatic birthing experience and the similarities she noticed uh, between the maternity system and her field of work. You can always catch Woman on the Line on 3CR Monday at 8.30.
0: And then we're going to hear the second part of a conversation between Megan Krakauer, Noongar woman and project director at the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project, uh, and Uncle Robbie Thorpe from the 8th of May about community-based ways of dealing with trauma, the black excellence of elders, and the need for practical opportunities and radical empathy. And you can catch Uncle Robbie on 3CR on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. on Budgels Fire.
4: And then we have... Maybe the most beautiful, amazing, stunning guest we've ever had. That's not true. But um, we're, <laughs> we are all so excited that we have 3CR musician, sound designer, Tucker Jesse Hayes, who debuts two new sing- music stings on Thursday Bracky. And those are some of the stings that you played last week if you kept your listening ear out.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, for listeners, for dedicated listeners, you would have heard uh, the incredible stings that Tucker uh, made Uh on garage band i can't believe the talent like i could not do it myself um and we got to play them during our radiothon special uh because tucker very generously donated 20 dollars uh, to the radiothon effort so thank you so much tucker and we're so excited to talk to you later um but that and more is coming up on thursday morning breakfast so stay tuned
6: hey. Hey, 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 hey. i got a will
7: come together and sit
8: down by the fire. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzalini at the fire. And Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. Who's gonna live?
5: They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in marabin. Fascism's on the march and we
9: say yeah nah Yena is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Ultaroa and all around our increasingly warm little
5: globe. Every Thursday at 4:30 p.m we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters no, 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 no. We don't need
10: no, no,
4: These are the news headlines for Thursday the 13th of July. New reports have surfaced this week of children being illegally detained in solitary confinement at the Banksia Hill Detention Centre, with the reports joining a long list of alleged systemic failures at the Western Australia Justice Facility. Three First Nations children were unlawfully locked in their cells for a combined total of 167 days amid a series of laurling lockdowns. The Supreme Court this week granted an injunction restraining staff from further confining the children without appropriate process, with the Serving Justice referring to the treatment of the youths as inhumane.
0: In other news, Larrakia First Nations activists and supporters continue protests this week to protect Binibara, an area near Garamilla or Darwin, at risk of being destroyed by Defence Housing Australia. Binibara is a significant sacred site for the Dungalaba clan, which the federal government plans to disrupt to build housing for defence personnel. A stop-work order is in place, but despite this, machinery was recorded working on the site last week. Dungalaba traditional landowners have made an emergency application to Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek for an immediate halt to the desecration of Dungalaba cultural heritage.
5: And finally, in news headlines for today, damning findings from the Royal Commission into RoboDebt were handed down last week finding the scheme to be cruel and illegal and the actions of ministers involved described as reprehensible abuses of power. As the fallout from the report continues, it's been revealed that private debt collection firms would pay commissions for retrieving money from welfare recipients and that motivation to earn commissions outweighed sensitivity in dealing with vulnerable people. The report contains a sealed chapter of recommendations for prosecution against those who drove or facilitated the robo-debt Scheme, and critics say the failure to publish this chapter is diluting the strong findings of the Commission. While the chapter remains sealed, high-level officials responsible for the illegal scheme enjoy new opportunities and little accountability, including Catherine Campbell, Human Service Secretary at the at the time, Debt was in action, who is now receiving a $900,000 a year salary in an advisory role on AUKUS with the Defense Department. Wow.
0: These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 13th of July. But I – wow. That is yeah. – that is appalling. I mean, for – you know, for those of us who have either been following this for a while, who've been affected by robo-debt, to, to hear that there continues to be this interdepartmental shuffling of people that have been complicit in perpetrating such horrible systemic violence against people that receive welfare payments, which is a huge amount of people in this country, um, and which has led to the deaths yeah. of, you know, many people who we're understandably seriously distressed by by this uh, inquiry it is it is appalling. I mean, I encourage people to, to look at all of the activism and campaigning that, um, you know, the Not My Debt campaign have been doing on social media. Folks like Asher Wolf, Thomas Sudans, um, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union has also been advocating a lot about this um, and Anti-Poverty Centre as well. Just a whole lot of folks have um, basically it's been grassroots folks who are affected by robo-debt who have been drawing attention to this from the very beginning. You know, this this Inquiry didn't come about organically. No. Um, this is because people who have been affected by these processes have said, you know, we've had enough. And this is time for systemic change. But it remains to be seen what government's going to do about it.
5: Yeah. Yeah, I guess institutional abuse. Um, it just it continues to happen regardless of who's – you know, like it's just—it's a power – it's an institutional thing. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it really is um, – like I, I got, I I received 192 bucks as I was part of mm. the robo debt thing, and at the time I was I was transitioning from unemployment to work, and that was the last thing I needed was a reminder from you know that I owe, you know I think yeah. it was. um at the top of Centrelink or something like that, some money and it was, it was really difficult.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So our, um, yeah, our solidarity and thoughts go out to everyone who's been affected by robo debt. And uh, of course, people that are waiting for a real measure of justice to come from this scheme.
5: It's because it happens to you as an individual, you get this information alone and it's, and who do you talk to when that happens? So I think that's what makes that's what makes these things really difficult is because it's it's like one person versus the state or or the inst or the system I guess and so yeah it's it was it's intimidating Absolutely. it can be intimidating
0: it can be intimidating and as as you said so isolating. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, our our thoughts with everybody. And we're hoping to, you know, get folks on who have been campaigning against this uh, in the next few weeks to talk through what happens next and how, you know, we actually proceed from these damning findings to some sort of structural change and towards justice. Yeah. Yeah. So those have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 13th of July. And you are listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Left after breakfast.
11: 38 years of information, insights, analysis and opinion. Just plain old common sense, really.
10: 8.30am on Fridays. Published or not has been on air for over 20 years. And in
9: that time, it's been hosted by Jan
10: Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll
9: be talking about text, discussing words and
10: ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app.
3: So join us... Every Thursday at 11:30 on 3 CR I've
6: been working on my rewrite that's right I'm going to change the ending Go throw away my title and toss it in the trash mm-hmm.
12: So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Joma Umbinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR
10: Community I Radio. It to
12: be free. Smith Street Dreaming is a special gathering of dancers and musicians that will honour elders, families and community through traditional ceremony in Fitzroy. Featuring Uncle Herb Patton, Arnie Janice Bakes, Jiri Jiri Dance Group, Morandaya Yapena Dance Troupe, Bandok Tati, The Small Ant Brothers, Uncle Johnny Lovett, Lee Sunnyboy Morgan Show, Empath Soul, and Firestarter Chris Hume. In Atherton Gardens, corner of Brunswick and Gertrude Streets, Fitzroy. Saturday, July 15th from 1 till 5pm. With free barbecue and coffee on site and entry is Free. Smith Street Dreaming is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria, the Smith Street Working Group, Leaps and Bounds Music Festival, and Yarra City Council. A 3CR supporter.
0: And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are joined by Mary Nalatikau. Amer Kangezer and Eliki Reed, who are co-creators of the Listening Across Fault Lines sound art series, which explores listening cultures in the Pacific and bringing the wisdom of Pacific elders and knowledge holders together with immersive soundscapes. The series centers Pacific cultures, understanding of the fundamental interdependence between people and ecosystems and the importance of deep listening to these relations. Mary Takao is a storyteller and independent consultant working in research, communications and public diplomacy, as well as a current Fulbright Scholar at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Amer khan is a writer, geographer, and sound artist who focuses on the connections and relationships between people, places, and ecologies. And Aliki Reid is an interdependent producer and artist of Kailama Fijian or Fijian European heritage with six years' experience in creative production with a focus on the community, art, and cultural development sector. Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Yay! Um, I'm so glad to be able to speak with all three of you this morning, because I know this was definitely a very collaborative process. And um, if there's one thing that's really been emphasized through listening to the podcast, it's uh, about how listening is is relational. Um, And so I was wondering maybe if I could get you all to briefly introduce yourselves in turn. So Mary, did you want to start?
13: Um, Sure. Um, Thanks for having us, Priya. I'm Mary, as you mentioned, um, currently based here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I'm studying at the University of of Minnesota. And I crossed paths with this project. um, You know, there's something that I'm so grateful for. About five years ago, I was working in communications where my work background is, particularly in aid programs and Amer, who uh, was uh, was working with the University of the South Pacific at the time. And I was kind of looking for ways to expand my background in storytelling and, you know, podcasting and audio storytelling was one of the ways that we really, um, you know, shared shared a great interest in. And, you know, that brought us into this wonderful collaboration that we all have today with Eliki as well. Yeah,
0: awesome. Amer?
3: Um Yeah, my name is Amer Kangiza and uh, I am a geographer currently based at um, the University of London um, in the UK at the moment. Um, I have been working as a sound artist um, and geographer for the past 15 years now, quite a long time. Um, and as Mera said, I was spending uh, a while in Fiji at the Oceania Centre at the University of South Pacific, which is where I met Mera and where we started working together on... Um, using podcasting and using radio as a way to communicate uh, stories around climate change and around environmental change in the Pacific.
0: Yeah, Aliki?
7: Um, Yandra, good morning. Um, Yes, uh, my name is Aliki Reid. I I work as a producer um, and... Work in particular with the Pacific diaspora within Nam Melbourne. Um, and yeah, I came into the work through um, Pacific diaspora connections that Ame had made in Nam. Um, and we became friends a while before they invited me to work with them. And I guess it was sort of like formed around a foundation of knowledge of each other and a trust in the processes formed that formed the basis of our working together.
0: Yeah, that's so beautiful. I really, um, I love how. The relations between the three of you has been... Sort of the genesis of of the podcast as it as it currently exists, and yeah, I'm really interested to hear a bit more about how you all came into this work and and the de- uh, the decision to develop the listening across fault lines sound art series um, in the way that it turned out. So these are years of conversations and relationship building, you know, with uh, the elders and knowledge holders that you've been speaking to as well, and uh, as well as you know these amazing field recordings from Amr distilled into the series. So I was hoping you could give us a bit of an insight into this. Process, um, uh, Mary. Did you want to go first, and then maybe throw throw to whoever?
13: Sure, um, I'll I'll definitely throw it to, to my to my two collaborators. I think. Um, you know listening across fault lines as a concept uh came to me as kind of a lifeline in the middle of the pandemic i think um, Suva fiji we were in the middle of our first shutdown and um, i think um, it was kind of in the wake of, of one of the of, of one of the cyclones i'd made a little iteration of a podcast that i'd wanted to be uh, you know wanted to finish for some time finally got around to doing it and sent it to Ame. Uh, they had a listen and had some great feedback and then we started talking again about potentially col- collaborating and that was when Ame um, came to me with you know with this with this opportunity to work together on listening across fault lines. It was something that um, I jumped at uh, because it was certainly an area where you know coming from communications, it's a bit more of a technical kind of risk averse way of telling stories. Uh, and there was definitely a part of me that was crying out for a new and creative way of being. And I'm so grateful to have Eliki and Amel as collaborators. You know, they certainly bring so much more of the collaborative, creative type of working that I'd been craving for for, for, for long. So that's how um kind of this Listening Across Fault Lines um, project was introduced to me. And quite soon after that, I got to meet Eliki as well. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So, it, yeah, I mean,
3: <laughs> it really kind of started um the Listening Across Fault Lanes came out of a larger project that has been ongoing since about 2014 um, that I started doing uh, through being introduced uh, by a Samoan friend um, to organisers based in Fiji that were working with queer and trans people organising around disaster relief in Fiji and across the Pacific. And so that really sort of started... Uh, getting me thinking about the ways that particularly, uh, specifically at that time, queer and trans communities kind of organised together to look after each other at the sort of front lines or the difficult kind of points of climate change and those points where uh, social structures and social kind of um, resources and economic resources are less available to particular kinds of communities living at the climate front lines. And so we really started having conversations with people around about that point, like 2014, 2015, and speaking a lot to organizers in different kinds of community organizations based across the Pacific around what it even means to speak with people around climate change organizing and more specifically what it means to speak to people around. Uh, noticing environmental change in a much more holistic kind of way. So thinking about how environments are changing through the ways that they sound different and how people's relationships to environments are really shaped through sound as well. And so through that kind of process, which really was, is now at this point, six, seven, eight, almost like eight years more or less uh, in a process of speaking to people and speaking a lot as well uh, to community elders. I think most of the people that we spoke to really were like queer and trans people and women. So we're really focusing on those kinds of communities and speaking to people around their relationships to environments and then Um, As Mer already said, we met through uh, doing podcasting together and then also invited Aliki on board because Aliki's also been working quite a lot on environmental justice issues and climate organizing.
7: Um, Yeah, I I had my run with the Pacific Climate Warriors kind of more in the advocacy space and I was super interested in um, Ahmed's approach and um, I guess – conversations and and direct sort of action and connections to the islands in that way as well. So um, there's something really um, exciting for me about being able to work with those stories and and bring those conversations into, um, I guess, an artistic space in a way that sort of carries it with consideration and care um, that I felt really honoured to be invited into the fold for.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I mean, I was, I, I, you know, I really loved how this series explored these multifaceted practices of listening, and how it can be at once, you know, this spiritual immersion and form of intergenerational connection and connection with ancestors as well, um, as well as a climate change methodology um, in terms of, you know, people assessing climate change relationally, and and in particular through their listening practices. Um, now. Through the focus on Pacific cultures of listening, this series is is really centering ways of knowing and relating that refuse to conform to a colonial binary between humans and other than humans, but also to a whole lot of other colonial binaries, as you mentioned, around queer and trans folks as well. So, um, I'm wondering how practices of intentional listening and silence inflect the lives of the elders and knowledge holders you spoke with across Fiji, Kiribati, and Papua New Guinea, and, how have they been involved in transmitting these practices to the next generations in the face of colonization and reclaiming interconnectedness through, through listening? Mary, did you want to go first?
13: Sure. Um, I can speak to um, the you know the conversation that I had with Rendre one of the um, uh, custodians that we spoke with uh, as part of listening across fault lines, and um, he um, had been involved for a long time with Fiji's Department of Itoké Affairs, which is kind of focused around you know the the identification, preservation, and promotion of of indigenous uh, knowledge and, and culture in Fiji, but more broadly, I'd say at least over the last. You know, um, decade or so, there's been this, this real, um, you know, this, this real appetite for this real yearning for people reconnecting with, with their cultures and, 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 their identities. And I say that, um, in diaspora communities, but also within Fiji itself, um, there is, you know, with the growing urbanization over the years, you have many, uh, sort of, you know, generations of people who have not necessarily been able to maintain links with their outer island heritages as much as they would have wanted, wanted to, you know, it comes at great and great cost to be able to maintain those linkages, and you know um, we saw that accelerated during the pandemic when people started to reach out to each other virtually to have these spaces where they ask you know um, about ways in which they can remember they can dig into their own family law, they can test and look into different aspects of of their own history and um, and Simeone has been incredible in being such a welcoming force in this uh, in this area of speaking there 's always a tension. Or, or a fear about being rejected if you if you want to reach out and if you want to know and you worry about being able to approach it in the in the appropriate way. And Simeone has been, um, you know, one of um, one of many voices I'm happy to say now, but certainly one of the earliest to say that, you know, you know, you're always welcome. You're always welcome to reach out and, you know, familiarize yourself with your heritage in, in ways that you feel comfortable. Um, and so I think our, our conversation, the conversation that I had with him was very much about unpicking that and being being generous and opening and welcoming with his knowledge. And I'd say that that was certainly a theme that was, you know, that that, that we came across in, in many of the people that, uh, that we spoke. To and you know, happy to see, you know see if Amir and um, uh, and Iliki can can share a bit more on that.
3: Yeah, Absolutely, I, guess, I mean. Oh, sorry. No, I'll just no, quickly yeah. add. Like, I certainly felt you know through all of the conversations that I had with people, there was such an immense generosity around the kind of transferal of this knowledge around listening. You know, and such such an. In, such an emphasis all of the time through all of the people that I spoke with around the importance of listening and the importance of, you know, uh, sharing that, message, I suppose, around listening as well. You know, that idea that listening wasn't something that was, you know, just one person or a certain person could do. It was something that was so deeply embedded in all relationships with environments. And it was something that people, certainly the elders that I spoke to, felt like it was getting lost or it was getting ignored in some kind of way. It was something that needed to be, I suppose, like reinvigorated or attention being put back onto again, you know. And of course, there's all sorts of stories uh, that feature in the works as well, around the importance of listening to knowledge, you know, knowledge of weather systems, knowledge of plant life, knowledge of, you know, uh, subsistence, like all of these different kinds of areas of life where listening is acutely fundamental to understanding how to navigate those things. So, you know, I think there was exactly as is saying, you know, a really strong emphasis on listening and spreading that message as far as possible. And, really making sure that people understood that everybody had a responsibility to listen, that it wasn't just the responsibility of one person here or one person there, but it was something that was really deeply embedded in how people are existing and how we need to exist.
7: Yeah, definitely, Lance. Um in in a particular way as well in a diasporic context. I was fortunate enough to be connected with Simeone when I went back to Fiji through Mera um, and w- w- I was visiting family there and, yeah, it was, yeah, I guess sh- sharing the sentiments that our man Mera has shared is the sort of generosity in in putting those stories out there and to sharing those methods or those approaches to listening that, um, also, I guess, land differently in a diasporic context, sure, but also have an effect for where we inhabit, um, wherever we inhabit ourselves.
0: Yeah. I, I think, um, I also wanted to ask Aliki about how, how you found the, um, you know, your background in Pacific climate warriors, um, Influencing maybe the way that you come to uh, engage with the listening practices that are sort of explored through through the podcast.
7: Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I think um a lot of the people within the network they they carry the knowledges from their you know home places or their ancestral home places. So you know you have very distinct ways of listening that come to the fore that are sort of I guess entrained or shaped by the training space of the global 350 network. And so there are these sort of tensions that arise or, you know, our ways of working, I I guess that what tries to come to the fore in that sense is that the, 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 cultural ways of listening. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, in the advocacy space, you're always working it out. You're trying to figure out how best to work with each other. So, um, yeah, there is that kind of like reaching back or looking toward your culture to inform those practices that you can either get right or you can sort of like struggle through. But I think, yeah, we definitely found our ways, but yeah, it's been really grounding having sort of that direct connection to elders, um, either through the recording, the archival recordings themselves, or even as in my case was, Fortunate enough to meet one of them, which is, yeah, such a joy.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the, I think like what, what has also really come through there is, uh, the fact that, you know, listening and com- like that kind of communication, auditory communication and listening is such a, an interdependent kind of process. And it means that, um, it means that people really have to be attuned to the environments that they're in, but also the relations with, with people that they have um, to actually, you know, uh, be aware of what is going on and um, to also maintain an awareness to change when it happens. Um so, I, I really loved as well how Amer's field recordings were interwoven into these soundscapes that were created for the episodes. And I was hoping um, that we could hear a bit more about both the recordings and then the soundscape development for the series. So, how were these curated and pieced together to reflect some of the ebbs and flows of conversations between Merit and various elders and knowledge holders, Amer?
3: So. You know, in a lot of the work that we do, I think in all of the work that we do, the way that we use field recordings are really, really intentional. And one of the things that I spoke to people a fair bit about actually with doing the soundscape recordings is the importance of recordings being in vocations of the place where they're taken from, mm. you know, so it's not just like a recording of an ocean, it's a recording of the Pacific Ocean in a particular bay on a particular island, you know, or in a particular marine protected area. And that's something that we've been really dedicated to in all of the work that we do is really honouring the specificity and the you know, the location of the recordings that we're using and making sure that they're coherent with what the listeners are hearing. So, you know, that that's something that, um, you know, most people probably won't know about. But when you are listening to the interviews, oftentimes the recordings are of the places that the people who we are speaking to are from as well. Um, The sound design for the piece was done by uh, Daniel Ianarch, who's a NAM based uh, sound designer and sound artist. And we worked with him for, we've been working with him for quite a long time. Um, And we really tried to work on making the sound be, I suppose, as organic and just really in place as possible. Because one of the really important things about the sound as well was to make sure that it had as much, I suppose, uh, airtime and as much attention as the voices did as well to really kind of accentuate that relationality between people and their environments, because it was really important not to build a kind of hierarchy between, you know, that people were more important in that environments, but to really kind of show that interdependence between people and environments as well.
0: Yeah. I, I think that came through so strongly as well because, um, I guess when you when you think of a a podcast, general podcast formats are mainly just people talking with music um, or little you know sound like non voice interludes that sort of come through to have a break between talking or it is just to introduce something or to have an outro um, but this was really um immersing you in the sound and having you attend to those uh those recordings for example of water um you know of the surf uh, as a part of the conversation. Um, so I, I was well, also... We also oh, yeah. I should oh. add to
3: that, though. We were also really fortunate in that these works were commissioned by um, Deutschland Radio for, specifically for their sound art uh, and radio art series. So, you know, we were really invited to make a radio art piece that, that did emphasize very much the soundscape element of it as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is like, it's fantastic. It's really hard to describe um, what it sounds like without people listening to it. But again, this will be in show notes so people can go have a listen themselves. Um, but I was hoping we could also uh, hear a bit about uh, what each of you found to be the most impactful parts of this collaboration. Were there any particular moments or encounters that really stood out to each of you during the process of developing this series? Mary, do you want to go first?
13: Um. Oh, I'd say that, you know, I think one of the, one of the wonderfully surprising ways in, in which, you know, I found this collaboration impactful was just the, the spontaneous intergenerational conversations that it sparked. I remember having the, finishing the conversation with Simeone. And then going back home and then just having a debrief with my parents. And we had this incredible conversation that spun off of, um, you know, a, a story that he shares about a totem tree that appears in one of the episodes. And um, and then, of course, after, you know, after we'd, we'd produced the piece, um, uh, m- my mother, who barely who barely does this, but she sent me like, you know, a paragraph long sort of debrief on how she found, you know, of the experience listen, listening to it. And, you know, I've had friends from, from back home reach out. To me, about how they, you know, how, how much they they've taken away from it, and I think everyone takes away what you know what what they individually need or want to hear from from any from any piece, and I think that's been rewarding from it because you know in reflecting on on everyone's feedback, I've also come to realize that it it became an, um, a great lifeline for me back home, being away from home for you know the, the best part of a year in, in finishing this piece, being able to just be surrounded by these sounds, being able to, um, you know, go over these these conversations has been a wonderful way to commune with, you know, with uh, the idea of being home. And it's also helped me appreciate more about being in this new space where I am now, you know, moving from winter into spring and, and summer here now in the Midwest, being able to identify new bird calls is something that, you know, I cherish in a new and different way now, uh, thanks to, you know, this this collaboration that we've had. So I hope that's, you know, a bit of something that, that people can take away from it too. Yeah. Um Eliki?
7: Yeah, definitely the reception. It's been really warming, Mary sharing stories about how it's landing with, like, her family and friends and uh, just reminded me that I want to send the episodes to my own mum who's based in Fiji as well. Silly me. Um, But, yeah, I I think also something that's been, I I guess, striking is how it's sort of – how there's so much interest outside of the Pacific as well. Um, That's I think that's something that's, like – yeah it still kind of shocks me, but is also really interesting to sort of grab hold of um and I think you know there's this sort of resonance moving away from kind of like secular dogmatic kind of like climate focused conversations to something that's a bit more open and relatable and, um, and and you know, sort of rooted in joy but not sort of hiding the, the impact of it all. And that's something that I'm interested in, a thread that I'm interested in following through this collaboration with Ahmed, Mary, and all of the elders that we are fortunate to speak with. Um, yeah, I think that there's this kind of yearning for, for I guess, another way.
0: Amir, what about you? Um, Yeah,
3: look, I mean, I I think honestly, like, Aliki and Mera have really covered a lot. Um, I think probably one of the really, really nice things that I find about this collaboration is that it is such a beautiful opportunity to introduce, like, sounds to people that a lot of the times people haven't actually heard before, like the sound of damselfish. You know, in a reef, or the sounds of parrot fish eating seaweed and algae you know there there are just sounds there that are so cool (laughs) this is really nerdy but like so cool and interesting and it's actually just been such a joy to share like these files with like Mary and Aliki and be like oh my god like what is that like I remember how much we were flipping out about the sound of an urchin like the sound of an urchin eating you know the prospect of what would that sound like you know and I think there's just something so Ah, uh, it's so it sounds so cheesy to say, but it's like so wholesome. Like mm-hmm. it's just they're just so cute. Like the sounds are just so incredibly, like just amazing and wonderful. And I think that's this enormously pleasurable part of working with sometimes what can be such intensely heavy, and you know. Uh, and material that is often shaped in in ways that are either about hero, heroes or victims, climate heroes or victims, that mm. those sorts of things get missed out on. And I think that's been a really delightful part of this collaboration is to be able to share in that, you know, just the, I don't know, just the fascination with,
0: with sounds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is it's also, you know, fundamentally been something that brings you into relation with, you know, with these fish and with these environments uh, in a way that I think maybe um, like a visual or written medium wouldn't necessarily do uh, because you're like, what is that? Like, what is making that noise? Like, why is it making that noise? Is this like listening to, um, you know, other than human um you know, creatures in the environment um, working through their everyday lives, and then listening to elders talk about how attending to those, you know, regular patterns of movement and of being in the world uh, being interrupted, and, and understanding that that is a signal of various kinds of change, whether that's uh, climate change or whether that's you know regular seasonal change in the form of storms. It um, it reminds you that you're you're already embedded in these relations it's more of a choosing to to wall yourself off from listening um rather than uh necessarily you know having to build a new relation they're already there and i think this has been just i mean as 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 a recent listener to this series it's just sparked so many so many little things in my brain about being like i really need to be more attentive um to what's happening around me um because that's that's such an important thing, you know, within a settler colonial context as well. To think about, you know, how we're walking on Wurundjeri and Bunurong country, uh, where I'm based in Narm. And so I'm I'm really grateful to, to all of you for pulling this together, and to all of the elders and knowledge holders who, who you know shared their wisdom about listening cultures. Um, but I guess as as my as my final sort of question, um, where to from here? Where can people Listen to listening across fault lines, and do any of you have any other work you'd like to plug? Mary go ahead <laughs>
13: <laughs> um well definitely you know you you can listen to um listening across fault lines on, um, mm. on um, deutschland r- radio's website you know um it's available in both in both German and English they're also on the horse um, um radio um Um, radio platform on, um, on Spotify. Um, and I think really for us, it's, it's also about making sure that, um, you know, I think it spoke exactly to, to, to what Eliki mentioned as well, where it's, it's important to share this, um, not only as something that's, you know, with, for and, and by bias within the Oceania region but also this appreciation that when you share something that's unique to yourself and unique to your culture um it finds more ears really than you think than you think it would traditionally and i think it's important to stay to stay open to that and um i think that you know that's something that i hope you know we can we can share with with listeners as well there's always um I guess not, not necessarily a reluctance, but wa- wa- wondering about whether you'll be understood or, you know, mm. or comprehended. And I think, you know, just from, from your feedback, Priya, and from, from what we're hearing as well, that, you know, it's, that it's very much not the case. It's certainly worth getting out there, and exploring and making, making some ripples. Um, and we're grateful that we had, you know, collaborators in, in Germany as well, like our said, who, um, you know, who commissioned the work specifically for that, um, that purpose as well. Um, I'll let Ame and Eliki talk about um, the work that we have coming up as well.
7: Yeah. Um, it's, we're fortunate that we connected or Ame connected with um, some people in Denmark. And so we were invited just uh, recently. We came back in uh, June I think the start of June. Um, but we were there for two weeks in Strua, um, as part of a development for Strua Tracks Biennale. So, um, yeah, I I guess working with the archives that we have, um, we've developed a, a different work incorporating, um, the conversations and the field recordings in an experimental way, um, And we're turning it into a sound installation that will launch in late August. So if you happen to find yourself in the little town of Strua in Denmark in late August, um, (laughs) then go give it a, (laughs) go give it a look if you can.
0: (laughs) I mean, I don't doubt there will be some Melburnians wintering.
7: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. European summer. (laughs) Oh my
0: gosh. Um, Amir, go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, th- this is
3: really just kind of the first, the Listening Cross Fault Lines uh, radio series is really the first iteration of of what we've been working on, the first kind of, I guess, public iteration of what we've been working on. Because as Aliki mentioned, we have the piece coming out with uh, Strua, which was in collaboration actually with uh and they've built a fantastic seat for us, like a vibrating seat. Uh, that we can feel the sound waves through, which is amazing. Um, And we also will be launching a really large-scale, actually, immersive artwork at the beginning of next year uh, in Germany, in Berlin, for Transmediale and that will be touring over the next couple of years so that is also set to come back to um, Australia and Oceania and its home place is actually going to be in Fiji where we're going to be returning the recordings as well to the archives of the place where we've recorded them and we're doing a whole bunch of educational work around that too so yeah this was really just the beginning
0: Uh, there's there's going to be a lot more to come this is wonderful to hear because um, I think, you know, listening to the series um, has just left me wanting to to hear more and to follow this journey as it, as it continues. So th- I just want to thank you all again so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, yeah, You know, Amir and Mary, you're joining us from so far away. Uh, Aliki from a little closer, but thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much for having hey. us.
7: Thanks for your time, Priya.
0: All right. See ya. Hey. And that was uh, that was Mary Nalitakau, Amakangiizer, and Aliki Reed, who are the co creators of the Listening Across Fault Lines sound art series, which explores listening cultures in the Pacific, bringing the wisdom of Pacific elders and knowledge holders together with immersive soundscapes. The series centers Pacific cultures' understanding of the fundamental interdependence between. Uh, people and ecosystems and the importance of deep listening to these relations. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM.
10: I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of, of West Papua.
0: Papua. Tuesday, six thirty until seven thirty PM.
10: News and
6: music from West Papua.
4: That was truly such an incredible interview from Priya and I can't wait to listen to listening across fault lines. And now you'll hear from our beloved 3CR Fung from Tuesday Brekkie and Women on the Line and she had a chat with Daisy who is a NAM-based family violence lawyer and queer parent of a newborn who has recently had to navigate the medical maternity system. Daisy joined Fung on the 26th of June to share with us her observations on the lack of continuity of care for birthing people, the learning and unlearning that was required to avoid a traumatic birthing experience and the similarities she noticed between the maternity system and her field of work. And I just wanted to mention um, that this discussion will involve, you know, traumatic um, fertility and hospital and institutional um, stigma and discrimination and i know that that's not always easy to listen to um, so you're always welcome to contact q life as well on one eight hundred one eight four five two seven. 184 527 that's one eight hundred one eight four five two seven. 184 527 or you can join us in about 10 minutes
1: thank you davy thanks so much for joining us on women on the line could you please start by introducing yourself to our listeners
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so my name's Daisy. I work in the family violence legal sector in Melbourne here, and I've recently had a baby. So I guess part of the reason that we're going to be having this chat today is just to talk about some of the things that I experienced and some of the observations I had um, throughout the birthing process and some of, I guess, the similarities I saw in relation to some of the work I do as well.
1: Yeah. So let's start with your experience giving birth and and navigating the healthcare system in that way. What were some of the things that really stood out for you?
2: One of the really interesting things for me is that I, so um, I'm queer, my partner and I went through IVF to conceive. And so that process in and of itself is inherently medical. So you you know, you're going in very regularly for checkups and you have to, you know, be ovulating on a certain day and then go through and go through a transfer. And so the in the process of IVF is yeah incredibly medical. And so what I suppose we started to do, my partner and I, when um I was able to fall pregnant, was think about ways in which we wanted the birth process and pregnancy process to be less medical, if that makes sense. So just, you know, and when I'm saying not less medical, I mean, less um, medical in the sense that, of course, we want to get checkups and, you know, have um, scans and all of those sorts of things and make sure that everything's going well. But I suppose have also the tune into my intuition and, you know, have have an experience of pregnancy and birth that women and birthing people have been experiencing, you know, since the dawn of time, as they say. And I really wanted to figure out a way to to do that in a way that was safe, safe for me, safe for the baby, safe for my partner. And I suppose what happened along the way of that journey was a lot of understanding that the system in how it is now and probably post-COVID as well, it's probably gotten a lot worse, has really made it quite difficult, I think, for women to have the experience that I sort of thought we were seeking.
1: Yeah. So can you talk to that point a bit more? Was it how things were run or the conversations that were being had, whether to you and to your partner or just around you? that made it feel like it wasn't what you thought it would be?
2: Yeah. So I think one of the first things I'll say, like, obviously I'm not, I don't work in the in the field, so this is something I've observed as like someone going through the system, the medical system or the maternity system. And when I first sort of started looking into into it all, one of the things that comes up really regularly is this idea of continuity of care. So seeing the same midwife or seeing the same doctor or seeing the same person throughout your pregnancy journey um, as being one of the ways in which the most optimal health outcomes for mother and baby or parents and parents as well can be achieved. And so in Melbourne, like right now, it's really, really, really difficult to get continuity of care. So unless you pay for it essentially. And so it's a really interesting dichotomy, I think, because we do have this fantastic free healthcare system under Medicare that in compared to the US and you'll hear lots of people saying, wow, like we're so lucky. Like I went into the hospital and gave birth and didn't have to pay for anything. And like, that's absolutely true. But equally what's happening is that mo- women going through the public system, are not seeing the same person at all. Then I didn't see a midwife until I, w- I saw I think I we saw a midwife under the public system once at the start and then once at the end whereas the the research international research will say that seeing a midwife and seeing the same midwife throughout leads to such far better birth outcomes and so what what we would what would happen is you go in Someone gets you you know, your document. They look at you. Okay, yeah, here's these all of these sorts of things, and you start churning through as if you're, as if you're any other sort of, I guess, government system. That you know, it, it almost felt, and I think for me, which we'll probably get to a bit later in the interview, but I, it almost felt like any other thing. It felt like you were lining up to get. Your passport done, or you were lining up to go to some other government body to do something, and that's when we started sort of thinking, we only want to have one one child, and this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity where I've that we've gone through so much to get to this point. I kind of don't want to just be sitting here being treated like a cog in the machine. And I was, was I was probably about halfway through the pregnancy when I we started really looking into other options that were available to people that could potentially achieve that better outcome for us. But that comes at a cost, which shouldn't be the case.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you said just now, Daisy, that it's something that internationally the research says is something that's really crucial for the health and wellbeing of the child and the parents, everyone involved in that process. And yet that's something that is perhaps seen as a luxury here um, for people who can afford to pay in order to receive that care and i imagine as well being a queer parent who's wanting to go through ivf or or the process of of giving birth or someone who doesn't speak english or it just creates more and more um, for those people
2: absolutely and one of the so i think at um one of the public hospitals here there, there's a couple of programs that you, you can get into and it feels, it literally feels like you're like, I was on the edge of my seat waiting for the call to see if we got into the elusive program, which allows for continuity of care. And in the end, the reason that we weren't in that program was because I had asthma and anxiety. And so talking to some of the um, doctors, I was like, Oh, who gets into this program? Because, you know, like a lot of people are going to have different sorts of like co, you know, coexisting health conditions and things like that. And even the doctor was like, oh, like, it, it's so hard to get into. And, you know, talking to other people at our parents group, it's like a this elusive, cool thing that someone like may or may not get into. And so, yeah, I just think also being a queer, queer family and having those um, coexisting health conditions to me that would make you probably more, shouldn't you be more likely then to get the continuity of care to lead to those better health outcomes? But it doesn't seem like it's the case. And I think one of the reasons for that is probably because of the level of being risk averse that, you know, we definitely were, um, confronted with a lot. And that's fantastic. Like I'm absolutely so thankful for the availability of all of these options you know and all of those interventions and the interventions are things like having an induction or having you know a forceps birth or a cesarean and those things they're fantastic things that we have and once you sort of learn about them and when they're necessary anybody would be grateful that we have those those things available to us but the level to which they're being used is not necessarily correlating with the need. And that's that's something that I was coming across in my research a lot. And interestingly, I think because I'm a lawyer and I have the capacity to read research and to look into things and it became a really sort of clear choice for us that we needed to to have our own continuity of care, which meant hiring a private midwife to see throughout the rest of the pregnancy process and so many people can't afford that or so many people can't even get to the point of where I got in my research to even understand why that was the most important thing for us to do and I think the other problem is as well is that having these conversations it can there's there's a sort of a polarity going on where there's a group of you know maybe like Instagram influencers who talk about not not having any contact with the medical system and having a free birth and those sorts of things. And that's kind of not what I'm talking about. Like having continuity of care could mean seeing the midwife and going into the hospital and going into the doctor's surgery often and having checks often. It's not about opting out of any any sort of modern things that we know about birth it's actually about having someone there with you who you trust who's listening to you who's who's seeing how you are this week who's monitoring this thing because that's what's leading to to people having a better birth and i think i should also say i probably should have mentioned this at the start but my birth or the birth of my of our daughter was easily one of the most incredible experiences of my entire life and it was shaped completely and utterly by us essentially dedicating. It felt like we had dedicated almost like a full-time job, you know, over the last couple of months before I gave birth to my partner and I to ensuring that I didn't have a traumatic birth. And so to me, that's just completely and utterly unfair on on all of women and birthing people to have the bare minimum of not having a traumatic birth, the level of work that that went into it.
4: So you've just heard an interview from Woman on the Line from Fung's episode with Daisy, who is a NAM-based family violence lawyer and queer parent of a newborn who has recently had to navigate the medical maternity system. Daisy joined Fung on the 26th of June to share with us her observations on the lack of continuity of care for birthing people the learning and unlearning that was required to avoid a traumatic birthing experience and the similarities she'd noticed between the maternity system and her field of work. You can catch Woman of the Line on 3CR Mondays at 8.30 to 9am. And I also want to reiterate that this conversation around fertility and queer parenting uh, is not always an easy one um, and particularly how there is such a lack of care. And I think it's important to note that Daisy mentioned this in the interview, is that she is a family violence lawyer um, and has the skills to read through legislative documents and take up all of that research. But really, it is still incredibly hard um, to... You know, having to navigate the health and welfare system, and on top of that, had to get a private midwife in order to facilitate that. But not everybody has the the privilege or the luxury of doing that. Um, and if you need further support following this interview, you can always call Q Life on one 527 That's one eight hundred one eight four five two seven. And now I know we've been speaking about quite a few things today, so maybe let's take it to a little music break this is a lovely song called falling by dean brady
6: Feeling sick, need my medicine I mean, I just need a fix you my medicine i I've been doing this for way too long now, girl they chasing you to the end of the earth Sorry if I come across too strong Girl, I feel us levitate It's like I'm in a sky straight We say we too high but have faith And baby, I know that you are the one And feeling like me plus you is a sum And I don't even know what I'm saying right now But fuck it And we can figure this out do yeah. you know
4: And that was Falling by Dean Brady. Some old reminiscing of R&B vibes, uh, me thinks.
0: <laughs> oh <my laughs> I did not God. just say methinks.
4: <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, um, okay. take it away, Bria. What's the next thing we're going to listen to?
0: Okay, me, lady. <laughs> Um We are... <laughs> We're going back to something a little more serious. So we are now going to hear the second part of a conversation between Megan Krakauer, Noongar woman and project director at the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project, and Uncle Robbie Thorpe from the 8th of May about community-based ways of dealing with trauma, the black excellence of elders, and the need for practical opportunities and radical empathy. And uh, just a reminder, you call the first part of that conversation last week on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, so you can head back to 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast if you want to listen back to any of our previous shows, but in particular the first part of this conversation, which played last week. And you can catch Uncle Robbie on 3CR on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. on Bunjil's Fire.
8: Hmm. But um, and then we're going to shut the black box up. We're just too deadly. <laughs> and um, yeah, we're going to be here at the end of the day, no matter what they do. We're just yeah. so, you know, we're so resilient. And I want to pay my respect to my ancestors. always on that, you always. Know, because how resilient they were. And they're now elders. I'm just worrying about this corporate generation today, though, which way they're stepping. And yeah, and sometimes we worry about the universities and so
11: forth. There's some yeah. powerful the universities. Educated, yeah. But, you know, it's been said across the country, they're, they're a breeding ground. great breeding ground for assimilation. <laughs> No, I can I
8: can't disagree with that. Sis.
11: So, you know, we've got these beautiful people coming through that's yeah. and not all sad.
8: not sad all, but there's sad. some
11: that's very disconnected to culture and country and, and and our people. Yet then they turn around and go into some of these positions and speak <sighs> and for our people. How can you speak for our people when you don't know our people? Simple.
8: Become lawyers for mining companies and so things like that.
11: To the universities right across the country, you need to make sure that you've got strong Aboriginal programs. You need to make sure that you've got strong Aboriginal centres or First Nation centres. Can you say that a little bit later? So, Melbourne
8: University can hear you, hear you.
11: Yeah, no, well, that's what they need to do. They really need to ensure that they there's do. strong cultural centres and that recognise the deficit discourse because there's no point getting all these wonderful educations when the life circumstances. And death is occurring on a daily basis for our people. Use I, your mouths. I
8: agree. I agree. I tried university once. I lasted about ten months. Not even.
11: Well, a lot of our people they've got the best universities, and that's the universities. Um, they're the degrees of life. That's
8: right. You know, like uh, uh, I've lectured at universities. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, we, we've got we, we've got the raw source of um, information and knowledge. They've taken it off us, you know, and. But uh, when I went to you know I'd done a law course, but I didn't. I didn't. Mm. I'd started. I didn't want to. I, I wanted to study the roots of law and philosophy and religion surrounding law, and that. They said no. You're not going to do. You're not to do this. I said, That's what I want to do. Anyway, they knocked me back and made me do this little gammon law course. So I said no, no. I'm not doing that. I'd done my first case while I was at at university in the High Court. <laughs> and I used all the photocopy paper from the
10: university.
9: I served on everyone in the country. That <laughs> Unc- so was yeah. Uncle, I did four years at Melbourne Uni.
8: What what doing?
9: I was an apprentice plumber up there for them for the maintenance sections up there. Ah, I, I, I was ahead Do you of know the seat.
8: workings of that joint? Yes. I've never talked to
9: you. <laughs> it no, it was good fun back there. They yeah. looked after us up there. Yeah. You know, when I was playing footy, they made sure I was well rested on the Fridays and that, and so. <laughs> they did look it's after there. A dangerous me. place there. But <laughs> 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 no, but I, I don't drink and don't smoke and, don't, you know, don't okay. do anything. Don't okay, run.
8: well, you're right then.
9: So it's pretty, it's pretty easy for me to just have a little <laughs> rest.
8: Yeah, that would have been mad. And so one of the you other... have to have come and have a talk to some stays, Andrew. Well,
10: yeah.
9: You're always 100%. welcome. Oh, this is
8: open, open mic
11: here. See, so one, one of the things that really bothers me, there's a lot of things that bother me right now, but this government is criminalising poverty. We have families that walk into shops there who's got five and six kids. They're stealing meat there, and I'll say it straight out because I know people that do it. But that's because it's a choice of do I feed my kids or I don't feed my kids. This is what's being. This is happening right across the country know, because there is the poverty, saying, and yeah. and I see family members, you know, other people, a lot of people doing it. I'm not going to yeah. shy away from the truth. That's the reality. My, it's my, a my dog game. eats
8: really well because of that. <laughs> Yeah. He eats like a like a king. I don't know, I don't eat meat because I've got no teeth missing. <laughs> <laughs> but my dog he's eating um, the scotch and the, yeah. the porterhouse and what.
11: And see, so some of our families where they've got the fifteen twenty people in the house. I know. I, don't, cruel. I, I can't, It's cruel. So that impacts on the education about a Everything. young person trying to get to school. And then sexual abuse one. doesn't just happen in our community because I used to work with the Royal Commission into Institutional Response to Child Sexual Abuse and with no more legal service, and I travelled to about 27 prisons right across the country. But sexual abuse not only impacts on our people, but all people. So if does. you have a look at, um, in terms of suicides, there's been 10,000 people, dear souls, brothers and sisters, right across the country yeah. in three years that have taken their lives. 10,000 people! And that's it's not insane. even considered a crisis? Yeah,
8: but Look, what came over here 200 years ago? What were they doing to their kids back in the 17th century England? Mm. When they put them down in When they get them to go out and steal for them? You know, and if you do, you're abusing children like that, there's all other forms of abuse are going to be occurring. You know what I mean? This is what they brought to this country. And they forced our people to assimilate and be like them. You know, our people are human beings. Well, that's exactly right. I'm just lucky that I've had the strength to be able to stand up and fight because I've had people behind me in the in the community that I grew up. It's not for everyone. No, you know, and th- these these were very political cool communities, Fitzroy and Redfern. I grew up in that mix, you know, and and we thought we owned the world too. You know, and we had footy clubs, and we know like people didn't mess with us either. Mm. We had a bit of a say, but that's, we're losing that now, and uh, because we're all getting dissolved and slowly absorbed into the system.
10: Mm. We've got to mm. keep
8: hang- we gotta hold it in there for our people. We didn't cede our sovereignty and that's that's the spirit of this land that we're mm. holding on to. And I think that's basically we keeping us together and it's probably all we got and the mm. truth. That's enough. Mm. that's enough. And um you know, our day'll come.
9: Yeah. It's like it's like our parents, you know. Like mum showed us all the, the discipline and all this sort of stuff and um and dad showed us the work ethics, you know. Mum we had a lot of respect for our elders and that. Yeah. Uncles, um, aunties we, you know, when you're speaking to them, they're right every time. Uh,
8: that's why I don't argue. And, and I think it's the best mm. lesson that, listen to your elders, age-old saying. And you know, they've been there and done that. They, see, they can see. They can tell you straight away. Not, no one wants to listen to them. Right? And but you know, until they hit the brick wall, say, oh, I should have listened to my mum. Yeah. You know, know, you know,
11: you know, know. so many little people at home now, they've got so much trauma, and they act out against their grandmothers.
8: Yeah, oh, I can hear it. It's, it's so horrible, you know, like, I'm just... And then so they, boss,
11: they boss the grandmother around who's, you know, so much illnesses, sicknesses, struggling to make... it's what they
8: need at the end of their lives. And, you know, well, that's exactly right,
11: in. these little grandkids, and I'm not saying all, but some that I've seen, but some of these grandkids are the most loving little people. All they need is
8: that, that practical support. Well, what are we going to do? What, what's your solution? Um, okay,
11: you <clears> wind <right throat> up, up <laughs> build more houses right across the country... Absolutely. And in terms of that intense psychosocial support, make sure that it's assertive about and out into our community. It's very simple. Practical opportunities, radical empathy. So the intense psychosocial support, increase it like never before. Okay. That's the way forward. Spread love, you'll get love. Spread hate, you'll get hate. But build houses and support our community. How, how can people uh,
8: connect to you and contact you and support you if they might be listening?
11: Um... That's a good way to do. I can give you my mobile number or an email
8: address. Yeah, okay, well, people can contact me if they want to get in con- contact with you. Yeah, that's not a problem. Because you never know who's listening. We, we we go global here. We go across Americas, you know, Canada, and it's beautiful. You know, we got we got our supporters too. People, we listen to that. You know, it's heartfelt. This, yes. people know that people can. They up, talk with their hearts. Well, I you know. tell you what, you're a beautiful host, then.
9: I just love community, you know, just look, looking after them, get, let them get the next journey.
8: And, any victories that you, you hear about, you say anywhere Report them? Oh, uh-huh. amazing.
11: But, no, really heartfelt thank you for allowing us to come mm-hmm. on. Thank you.
8: Yes, thank Uncle. It's next a great pleasure.
9: I, next time i bring my partner, Fiona, in here. She, she can talk too. Her. No, but,
8: you're uh, very welcome. I, I love yarning the people. I yes. love hearing stories and... Um you know, we've all got these amazing stories. Every, everyone's a legend as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> particularly holly he got stories. Yeah, that no, no.
9: Our skill sets are un- unreal.
8: And, and and like intergenerational trauma gets passed on, yeah. so does intergenerational knowledge.
9: We're hu- mm. we're hunters. Uh, we
8: carry that too, whether we know it or not. We've got to get. It'll come out when we, we centre ourselves. Mm. We carry the the knowledge of our ancestors. We mm. carry our ancestors, you know, in a sense. Mm. We carry the the pain and the good. So mm. let's, tip, let's get that balance right. And see, so even
11: with that whole idea about this black excellence, someone asked me to make some commentary around that. Mm. And people were saying, "Oh, you know, people with these degrees doing this, 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 and that." My sister Carrie, our sister Carrie MP, said that was black excellence. She looked after all her children's 20, 70, 76 children and grandchildren. And she made sure they didn't go to jail. She didn't. She made sure they weren't removed. That's black excellence. Yeah, yes, so we need to true. really define what that. black excellence is.
8: Yes. Yeah, my mum brought up seven kids on her own here in, oh. in the ghetto. Yeah. Uh, you know, and 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 her her mum had 20, 30 people during the ghetto days of Victoria and yeah. Super amazing. Uh, it was super amazing. That's yeah. like, um, we, we lived in the parks and around the laneways
11: around here. And that's where the honour needs to be afforded. It's not about dressing up and going to these real deli balls, and I, <laughs> I honour and I pay respect to those that do, yeah. and some do some remarkable work, but also the unsung heroes, like the sisters, like Mum and so forth, there needs to be that recognition of the beautiful work that they do in community because they are doing remarkable work yeah, but they know. don't get
8: acknowledged. In fact, yeah. it, you know, if we had elders sitting in in council in our communities, things would be a lot different. You know, that's where our direction and... and and strength really does come from, what, what, and our wisdom and law, everything comes from those elders. What, what, then you've got your men's business, women's business, and what, your, and your young people learning the law. Well, that's our makeup, isn't it? Really? That is. That's a structure. That's a beautiful
9: structure. You know? that's, so, we, we, like I said, we were absolutely blessed with our parents. and off from from in house where we, we were looking from, we, we were so lucky.
8: Yeah, you come a long way.
9: Yeah. You know, I mean, Barker, I mean, Megan and Megan and I come at the end, but geez, the, the struggle they must have had at the start.
8: Mm. No, it's incredible. You know, I acknowledge all of them right across this continent yeah. and the islands. Yeah, lovely People them. don't know the, the true narrative of this country yet. Yeah. And uh, I think they, once the wider community understands the true narrative, they're going to be much more mm. understanding it was quite, and in, compassionate to us. They've been denied the truth and been mm. indoctrinated with racism. I yeah.
11: was well, speaking with one mum. Um, she, her mum came in from the lands at the five years old and then she was taken into a mission and then her daughter got taken into a mission. But I was yelling with her the other day. And one thing that will always stay with me, she said, I'm sick of the black struggle with the white mouths. Yep. And she said, my English not good, but I'm sick of the black struggle with white males."
8: That. Yeah, yes. That's powerful.
11: Just... Yes. And so even with child removals, there was another mother, she spoke about different eyes. They were with my, me tonight, but tomorrow they'll be looking at different eyes. Exactly, The beautiful words that come from our people, they need to be
8: elevated. Yeah. I can, I can, hear, that. I can, I can hear that totally. There's yeah. some, some sayings there, which are really Incredible. striking. and
11: um, Well, see, even, even the kids over at Banks Hill, when I talk about the, the marginalised and vulnerable, I'm not just talking about black, black kids because it's not just a black issue. It's our little non-Indigenous brothers and sisters in yeah, their two little I mean, children. I mean. And some of those, one in particular, dear little soul, he actually died at Banks here Hill, but they had to resuscitate him and they brought him back to life. That kid, he's been in the Department of Child Protection and Care for a very long time and highly traumatic. So, you know, I'm not just sticking up for us blackfellas, I'm sticking up for our, our battlers.
8: That's right. We're sticking up for human rights cool. in general, right across the board. Yeah. You know, that's where it's got to start. It's got to be enshrined in the law. Human rights for everybody, no matter who you are.
11: There needs to be a human rights legislation yeah. right across this country that is robust. Yes. That can to. compel change. Yep. And enforceable.
8: And enforceable. That, that doesn't you know, because, because it's not there, they've been able to get away with this stuff, see.
11: Well, that's exactly right. People say, well, we've got a Human Rights Act in all these different states and so forth. I think it's two or three states. So uh, are they actually
8: human rights laws or no, bills, charters? Charters. See that? But that's all it is. It's charter. Char- charter is not an enforceable law. There needs to be repercussions. It's just advisory, like exactly. the will be. to be, you can take advice from that charter or not. You know, well, it's just it's a, a, a charter guide. It's, it's not the actual business. Well,
11: that's exactly right. So human rights legislation, yeah, which I is robust, it. needs to
8: be. It should right, be a demand. A, demand a total the demand for everybody. I, I think that's we, we can all relate that. We're all human. Exactly. Right, and and. Every, every issue is sort of fundamentally around those issues, human mm. rights issues. So let's get a human rights bill, everyone, before we go any further. And the UN is a really powerful body, but the mere fact is, is it's it's not binding. Yes, and they haven't been very helpful to us, the United Nations. They yeah, haven't, it's not binding. They haven't, haven't uh, forced Australia to conform to these convention laws. No. And I, I, I sort of got a, feeling, a sneaky feeling that the United Nations is another name for a multinational mining company. Mm. United Nations, yeah, you know, they've got, I reckon they've got shares in a lot of the businesses going on around here. Yeah.
11: And some, oh. of their, some of their charters can be really quite powerful, but Australia, Australia's not bound by them, that's the reality.
8: Yeah. Well, on that note, oh. <laughs> on, on, on I was be- going to play a song.
9: On behalf of the Cracker Miller, Miller family, thank you for having us on. Yeah,
8: oh, yeah it was, amazing. It's, it's, it's my pleasure, bros. So, yes. um, I'm sure people got a lot out of that. Thanks, Megan. No, we love coming out, hey, boss. And come in your own, yes. you come and have a own, bros. Sing yes, up so, old times yeah, around yeah. here and yeah. Tell us your story. You know, it'd yes. be, be fantastic. Love and respect you. Thank you so much, Thank and you, to yeah. all your listeners. I, I've got a show on Wednesday and Friday, always at eleven o'clock. Thank you. A tune in. Subscribe to Free Community Radio. Yeah,
9: beautiful.
10: This yeah.
8: is a, a voice of the comu- of the community. It's independent. It's community based and community controlled. You know, every year we got to raise money to keep it going. We have um, we got uh like a. One one week a year we raise money to keep the whole station going. It costs about a quarter of a million dollars. We we raise the money. We've been doing it for about going on 50 years now.
11: Well, what you've done just by having me and Andy on, which we appreciate, you carry the
8: voices. Yes. Oh, Love lovely. You know, so thank you for carrying carry the, your, voices the voices the from unheard. that side of it. And, and you too, Andrew. Thank you. You have to come in again soon.
0: And that was Megan Krakauer, Noongar Woman and Project Director at the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project, speaking with Uncle Robbie Thorpe uh, from the 8th of May about community-based ways of dealing with trauma, the black excellence of elders, and the need for practical opportunities and radical empathy. And you can catch Uncle Robbie on 3CR on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. on Bunjil's Fire. And now... uh, We're playing something very special in the lead up to our very, very special uh, interview, which is coming up now. So this is um, a little teaser, a music sting by our next interviewee, Tucker Jesse Hayes.
4: Now we are supported by 3CR supporter, musician, sound designer, Tucker Jesse Hayes. How are you, Tucker? I'm good, thanks.
0: It's so exciting to be on air with you, Tucker. It's it's myself, Priya, Inez just spoke to you and Spike in the studio. Morning,
5: Tucker. Morning.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you so much. Um, I just had a little meltdown because it's so sweet that you are here with us. Could you maybe tell us, Tucker, why you got into music? Well, it's kind of hard
12: not to be into music when you've got two parents that are constantly playing and listening to music around the house. And I just enjoyed it as well. And I also like the new kind of music that was coming out with lots of techie stuff as well.
0: Yeah, awesome. Um, Spike.
5: Yeah, yeah. Tucker. So, who, who are your favourite bands? Um,
12: well, I've been listening to a lot of uh, Daft Punk recently. Yes. Recently, and um, Tank and the Rangers.
0: Yeah. Ooh. I mean, I'm I'm not gonna I'm gonna admit that I don't know everyone, but I do know Daft Punk. I grew up with Daft Punk as well, um, and it was such a formative part of my uh, yeah my growing up and my teen years. So that is awesome.
4: And we also heard, Tucker, that you're in some other really fun bands. Do you want to talk a bit about them?
12: Um, Yeah, so I kind of got into the, one of them bands, the Cherry Reds, because both of my mums played in there and the the drummer that we had um, didn't want to play in the band anymore. So I just, I'm feeling in there for a little bit. And we have our family band, which is really fun. We do lots of like just fun gigs at, Uh, friends parties and that's basically
0: it yeah yeah i mean but you know you've been doing more than playing at friends parties you played the newport jazz festival how was that yeah that that was really fun
12: um it was it's kind of funny because i'm i'm just filling in and i was the front poster i thought that that wasn't gonna happen but (laughs) it was good because it was quite relaxed in that space
0: yeah, I mean, is this your first time playing, um, like, that size of show? Uh No. What else have you played?
12: Well, I played at my mum's 50th, and she accidentally invited hundreds of people. <laughs>
4: <laughs> on accident, on accident. Yeah. Um, I also, we also know that you make really sick beats on GarageBand. Can you talk us through how you kind of, kind of put your beats together
12: so um I started on my mum's laptop and then when I got my laptop I got GarageBand straight away and I downloaded all of the um the all of the little sound files that you can get and that has taken up about half of my computer storage Mm -hmm. and it's it's really fun though because you can go through and make heaps of different songs with all these different sounds and different countries and basically I just choose some tracks like little beats I like and I put them in and then sometimes fade them out and in and stuff.
4: Yeah is there like a effect that you really like? I think when I've been playing around with those things I really love the reverb. What do you like?
12: Well um I just there's this SoCal thing that you can put in an artificial drummer Mm-hmm. and you can play around with like different styles like if he's soft, soft and complex or like if he's really loud but does lots of beats then you can put percussion in and you can do fills and uh, like swing on that as well so that I usually just put down my drum track first and then um, layer a few things else in afterwards
0: that is spoken like a drummer <laughs> uh, just put the drum track in first and then we'll figure everything else out no that's That's awesome. And I mean, the. Like, are are you self taught on GarageBand? Did you learn how to do it yourself?
12: Yeah, um, a little bit because my mum runs about five choirs, not including the ones that she's in. And (laughs) uh, she uses GarageBand sometimes to just play a recording of how the choir should eventually sound. Mm -hmm. And um, so then I. Then. One of her friends just showed me this cool thing where you could get other tracks that were artificial, like the little sound files, and put them in. So all Mum was using was drums, and then I had an idea of just making whole songs out of those tracks.
0: Yeah, and I mean, from what we've heard, they are fantastic. Um, Tucker, I know you got to run, and uh, we're getting to the end of our show, but thank you so much for joining us. We really hope we can have you in studio sometime.
12: Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy making stings for you. and It's quite hard to choose which two stings I was going to put on today. But
0: Well, uh, there is space on our show anytime for any of your stings. Thank you so much. Hope you have a great day. Thanks. Bye. See ya. Bye. And that was Tucker Jesse Hayes, a 3CR supporter, musician, and sound designer who uh, has sent us some amazing music stings. And I'm going to play the second one that he sent us right now.
11: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.